Hello. Hi there. Welcome to From Skirts to Scrubs. I'm Charlotte. And I'm Alicia. And we are two medical students trying to figure out our place in medicine by looking to the past and to current events to try and understand the impact they have on us as women in medicine and as women in general. And you can find slash follow us on social media. Our Instagram and Facebook are at From Skirts to Scrubs. Our Twitter is at FSTS underscore podcast. And you can check out our website for more information on our episodes, show notes, sources, and more. And that's from scrubs.com. Yeah. And you can also subscribe to us on any podcasting app and leave us a rating and review. You can leave rating and reviews on Apple Podcasts and a rating on Spotify. Yeah, you can. All righty. Um, so I'm really excited because today we are going to be talking about sexually transmitted infections or STIs for short. Yeah. And holy moly, there's a ton of history here. Ooh, honestly, I feel like it is exciting, but honestly, I feel like I probably missed a lot of really interesting facts and stuff like that. Um, I decided to specifically leave out certain sub histories because obviously STIs are very different in many ways and each of them, you know, kind of has their own history. And so I don't want to paint them all as the same, but exactly. their histories, particularly those of syphilis and HIV are very, very distinct. And because of the people that these diseases have affected historically um, and the social and emotional impact they've had on our culture, I want to do episodes on them specifically in the future as just like separate entities. And for now, I wanted to just like focus on a couple of other STIs, but I wanted to let everyone know that so that we know kind of where we're going from here. Yeah, that makes sense. Great. Okay. So before we dive in, Shar, do you want to just like, let me know what you know about STIs, whether that's about their history, what they are, like maybe common STIs that you know of, whatever you want. Oh my gosh, just so many things. There's a whole bunch of them. Um, some really common ones are herpes, like HS1, HSV1, HSV2. There's like chlamydia, gonorrhea, like you said, syphilis, HIV, hepatitis. I don't know. There's so many. Trichomonas, so many. Um, and in the history of them, I think I, I think you mentioned it once in like a past episode about, oh God, what was it? It was like something like the women would be blamed for like men getting STIs mm-hmm. and then they would be like sent to jail over it or something like that. Mm-hmm. That's all mm-hmm. I remember. But I'm interested to learn more about like the history of STIs. I don't really know anything, honestly. <laughs> you know what's so fun is I literally don't remember mentioning that, but that <laughs> sounds right because that is I don't true. Even know so, what episode like, it was in, honestly. I, I don't, yeah, good memory. I don't remember saying that. Um, so that is like kind of true, true in a way. And we're gonna get into it and talk about it. And it's really interesting. So I'm excited. Okay, cool. I'm excited too. I like history. Yeah, all right. I, yeah, who would have thought? <laughs> The STIs that I'm going to focus on today are primarily chlamydia and gonorrhea, with a little bit of herpes kind of mixed in, you know, a nice little trio there. Um, But the most common sexually transmitted infections are chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis, and trichomonas. Um, (laughs) Trichomonas. But other notable ones are, of course, HIV, 
um, HPV or human papillomavirus and oh God, herpes how could I or genital that herpes. One? That's okay. I forgive you. But let's talk about STI basics first. So what is the difference between an STI and an STD? Honestly, I don't know. I've always wondered that. <laughs> nice. Oh, you know, it's great. actually not a terrible question. So, so an ST, so they're basically the same thing. They are the same thing. Um, but an STD is an older term. Um, mm. And it was changed because the language that we use around like diseases are that they cannot be cured. But many sexual infections can be cured. And so we change the name to sexually transmitted infections or STIs. But they're pretty interchangeable. Like, so if you hear me today say STI versus STD, talking about the same thing, the same diseases, uh, but the name is just different. It's changed over time. Okay. Adds up. Yeah. They're also called, so STI, STD, they're also called venereal diseases sometimes. This is like definitely an older term. I've never heard Um, of that. Oh, really? Yeah, venereal disease. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's estimated that 25% of all Americans actually have incurable STIs. So those, I guess, would technically be considered STDs, but no one's really like counting. Hmm. Um. And it's not always a bad thing. It's not like necessarily a bad thing to have an incurable STI because they can be managed these days with the proper medication and medical follow-up. And it's just something to know. So true. Yeah. So obviously you get STIs from sex. That's vaginal, anal, or oral intercourse. Um, And things that put you at higher risk of getting them are having multiple sexual partners, especially if those partners have partners and you're not having protected sex. So that is sex with a barrier, whether that is a condom, um, like a male condom, a female condom, a dental dam, any of those things as barrier protections. If you're not using those, then you are at increased risk of getting STIs. Even if you're on birth control, um, that's a big misunderstanding that people have mm-hmm. is that um, if you're on birth control, specifically like women who are on birth control, uh, it does not protect you from getting STIs. No, it does not, unfortunately. No, no. And it's important to know that. Um, other STIs like HIV and herpes simplex or HSV, they cannot be cured, but they can be managed. And the thing about STIs is that the bacteria or virus basically hides in bodily fluids. So whether that's semen, blood, vaginal secretions, sometimes even saliva, mm-hmm. um, when the little bugs get into those fluids, they can be spread And that is effectively how STIs are spread. Indeed. Yeah. But for our common friends, chlamydia and gonorrhea, um, chlamydia is where I'll start. So it is caused by a bacteria called chlamydia trachomatis, which in folks with uteruses can manifest as watery, clear discharge from the vagina or vaginal canal. And if you don't get this treated, it can cause inflammation of the pelvis, also known as pelvic inflammatory disease, which can cause infertility later on. So pretty dangerous. Yeah. It can also cause blindness in babies who are born vaginally to a mom with chlamydia. Have kind of 
called like actually I don't know what it's called, so I'm just not gonna say that. Oh, it's cold either. But it's not it's I, not I good. Forget. It's no, it's a bad time. <laughs> Gonorrhea is a little bit different. Um, so do you know how it's different from chlamydia, Charlotte? How we like differentiate the two? Um, I'm pretty sure the pus that it emits from the bodily parts of an infected person is like a different color. It's like green or something. I don't know if it's green actually, but it's it's different. It looks different than chlamydia. <laughs> yes, you're right. It's not green. Um, it but it's like creamy. Yeah, it's creamy. So the discharge is thicker and we call it purulent. Um, but that just means it's like white and creamy rather than watery, which is what chlamydia is like. And gonorrhea is more common in men, actually. But again, most women um, or people with uteruses don't have symptoms. And if they do, they're pretty mild. So the symptoms will be like burning or pain with urination, um, bleeding in between menstrual periods, uh, belly pain, pain with sex, etc. And it can also spread to your blood and cause something called disseminated gonorrhea. So that can lead to joint pain, eye issues, and even like blindness as well. Yeah. And a lot of people with uteruses can have STIs, especially chlamydia, and not realize it. Um, That's far more common than people with penises. Um, They tend to like have more symptoms when they Mm -hmm. get STIs like chlamydia or gonorrhea, for example. Um, And that's why it's really, really important to get STI tested regularly. And the United States Preventative Service Task Force recommends getting tested every year if you are a woman under 25. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's actually really funny. My friend, one of my friends in med school is like really up in arms about this requirement. And we had this whole conversation about why is it only required for women to get tested every year? Um, And yeah, we had this whole conversation about it. And so Mm -hmm. we're going to dive into that a little bit later and kind of like the history behind the guideline, and the evidence behind it. And um, good. Because I honestly think about that a lot, too. I'm like, why are only women? No. Yeah, I was really intrigued and I'm happy to kind of share it and and see where our discussion goes. But yeah, um, any other STIs you want to know more about specifically, Charlotte? I have blurbs for a couple others, but HPV. Great. Because that's super that's important. one of them. <laughs> yes. Yes. She forgot it before. She I didn't forgot forget it before. now. I will not forget it now. <laughs> <laughs> HPV. So HPV is human papillomavirus, and it is the leading cause of cervical cancer in people with uteruses, particularly women. It's spread by vaginal intercourse and it can manifest as genital warts, but it's also one of those things that literally everyone has, like everyone has HPV really. Um, But with the HPV vaccine and the rates of that going up in, you know, people from 11 to I think 19 is around the time, 11 to 21 is like around the time you get your Gardasil or HPV shot. Mm -hmm. Um, Because of that vaccine, the rates of HPV are decreasing, Um, though most young people, like if you're under 24, it's pretty likely that even if you did get HPV and you tested positive, you could clear the virus on your own. Yeah. Um, I have an interesting story I can add about that too. Tell me. I was talking while I was in like one of my clinical sessions like that we do in school to learn how to be a doctor, basically. 
Um, and I was talking to an OB and he was like basically asking us questions that we had no idea the answers to, which is how medical school goes. And he was like, what if you had a woman come to your practice and she's like 24 and is diagnosed with HPV and like through like an abnormal pap smear or something. And he was like, would Mm -hmm. you worry like a lot about cervical cancer? Would you be like monitoring, monitoring her very closely for like, you know, to remove her uterus, something crazy. And then he like explained very much like you don't like you might monitor her for like 10 years before cancer could come about. Like you can live with HPV for like a very long time or your body can just like fight it off, you know, to not even become something bad. So it's not good to get definitely get your vaccine. But it was really interesting to hear him like explain the process of the disease and like how he would approach a treatment plan after years of experience and like how some people would just be like, oh my God, you should go get surgery. And he'd know it's much more cost effect, less stressful for the patient if you just wait and watch it like carefully. Yeah, that's really interesting. I actually, it's funny that you bring that up because just today in clinic, um, I was talking about this with my preceptor and then another resident who was in clinic that day or today. And we were basically just talking about like HPV and cervical mm-hmm. cancer guidelines and screening and how it's really different in different age groups. And Mm -hmm. it's really complicated. Like I'm definitely not going to go into it now, but it was the same thought of like between 21 and 24, you or 25, honestly, you really don't need to act. And actually it sounds like guidelines are really changing so that um, they're moving towards um, kind of a system of uh, starting cervical cancer screening at 25 instead of 21. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because it has do of, anything. It's a yeah, lot of cost exactly. and things like that. Yeah, like, exactly. But anyway, that's like a whole nother episode, a whole nother topic. But yeah, yeah <laughs> definitely very interesting. Um, and then I also have a little bit about herpes, just like briefly. Mm-hmm. Herpes simplex virus it comes in two flavors, HSV1 and HSV2. <laughs> and there is this misconception that HSV1 is the virus that causes cold sores and HSV2 causes genital herpes. And to an extent, this is true because most cold sores are caused by HSV1 and um, genital herpes by HSV2, but you can get cold sores from HSV2 and then you also can get genital lesions from HSV1. Mm -hmm. And so having an active open sore in either spot like can is just makes that spot ripe for the spread. but what we don't really talk about is that a lot of people have some form of HSV, like 50 to 80% of Americans have HSV one orally, which manifests as cold sores. Mm. Um, but this can be spread to other people, whether that's genitally or orally. Um, and so, you know, it's a little more fluid than we kind of used to think. Yeah. It's, it's super common. Mm-hmm. But yeah. So now that we've kind of talked about the players in the game let's talk about how they played the game and at what (laughs) points in history and kind of where where they're at okay i'm ready yeah so we can start at the beginning which i always love to ask like where do you think in the beginning (laughs) where do you think the beginning was for stis charlotte if you have to pick an, an era an era is it an ancient era yes oh god i'm gonna try to pick something i usually wouldn't pick unless that's going to make me have the wrong answer, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to say Ireland. 
no 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 you really you went too far like it's not that <laughs> like come back an to like culture you just named the country ma'am yeah, that's not even a okay, culture like, like celtic tribes that is not right but that would have been ireland i think it's not that okay is it egypt Yes. It's just, okay, I was yeah, trying like, to not go, but we always like you tried to reinvent the wheel, but you didn't need to. Yes. So it for STIs, the, the beginning, or at least like my knowledge of the beginning, um, was the Ebers papyrus. So that's kind of where the first. Oh, the Ebers. Duh. Yeah, I know. I know. Classic. That's kind of where like first STIs were noted, but also the Old Testament of the Bible was like gonorrhea showed up there <laughs> really yeah yeah i mean it wasn't called that but in the old testament there are lines from uh leviticus verse 15 lines two to three uh where it says things like quote clothing needing washing as did the man himself and all infected persons had to keep themselves apart for seven days and if any man's seed of copulation go out from him, then he shall wash all his flesh in water. And the women, if she has an issue too, shall be put apart for seven days. Oof. So basically, like TLDR, separate those two people. <laughs> like they gotta, they gotta get them be apart. apart. Don't <laughs> yeah, let them yeah, near yeah. each other. Move it aside, folks. And yeah. <laughs> and then classic Romans and Greeks described STIs. Who who do you think is like who are the dudes who are the players who like the describe us yet? Hippocrates, nice. Galen, nice. The other two are like less intuitive. Some guy named Celsus and and Serenus, Sorenus. Mm. Mm. Um, I might have known yeah, a long time, <laughs> but they were the ones who kind of described gonorrhea. And actually, it was Galen who named the word gonorrhea because mm. gonorrhea means flow of semen. Oh, because it's all milky and weird, maybe? Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. In the Golden Age of Islam, which was like 900 to 1100 AD, mm -hmm. Abu Ali al-Hussein ibn Sinha Avicenna. That is a sick <laughs> name. It's an amazing name. Um, he's actually more of a well-known philosopher and physicist, but he was also a physician, and he wrote this gigantic like canon of medicine um, which for STIs recommended irrigations of urethral discharge. I was like, okay, not a terrible guess. Yeah. Yeah. During the Middle Ages, more information was kind of uncovered about gonorrhea, um, just in terms of how it was passed between people sexually, mm -hmm. and then how it caused urethritis, um, so inflammation of the urethra. Um, and then also epididymitis and vaginitis, which these are all basically just like inflammation of different bottle body parts involved in sexual function. Yeah. Itis and means inflammation. If you haven't caught on yet. Vagina inflamed vaginitis. Thank you, Charlotte. Yeah, <laughs> I'm here. I'm, this is what I'm here for. And actually at this time, people understood enough about gonorrhea to require infected prostitutes to not work in certain areas. Like oh. they knew enough about sexually transmitted infections to kind of put, make like put rules up um, and kind of kept sex workers from working in certain areas. It's yeah. 
yeah, that's kind of what they were up to. Okay. Um, and then also around the Middle Ages, other STIs cropped up like HPV and other different skin-related diseases. Um, around the Renaissance, changes in medical knowledge brought up more talk about diseases like syphilis and continued like the discussion of gonorrhea. It's basically just like people are learning more and more over time. But really, it was actually around the Industrial Revolution that led to this skyrocket in STI rates, which makes sense because people were moving to the city in droves and fields like epidemiology and microscopy started to improve. And so we just got to know more about STIs. Because honestly, they probably like existed. People didn't realize they were STIs or like how they came about. Yeah. And even though people did realize kind of, they were like learning, you know, over time. Oh, you know, this is transferred through sex, blah, blah, blah. But people weren't worried about it. It wasn't like a public health issue until the Industrial Revolution when it was like, and now everyone is having sex. (laughs) And with each other. Yeah, with (laughs) each other and they're spreading like wildfire. So, for example, an epidemiologist, um, his last name is Perrin Duchatelet. He's French. Um, He posthumously counted up where sex workers in Paris lived where they came from, and then also who they were having sex with. And he noted that syphilis, gonorrhea, scabies, and uterine cancers were more frequent in these sex workers than in other women, which makes sense, obviously, but it's still interesting. And I think I think that a whole conversation can be had about sex workers and stigma, especially regarding sexually transmitted infections, Mm -hmm. which I don't want to have right at this moment, but is still like very, very interesting to me. Mm -hmm. Um, But for gonorrhea until basically like the late 1800s, early 1900s was thought to mostly affect men. It was an infective urethritis that would come like men would get it and then it would clear up in three to four weeks. Though some men would have long-term effects like what we were saying before, joint issues, eye issues, that kind of stuff. Mm. And it was seen as less of a problem in women, um, though doctors were finding that women could get the infection um, of gonorrhea. And if they got pregnant, their babies were often blind because of it. They actually started putting diluted silver nitrate in babies' eyes to kind of like irrigate the eyes, kill the bacteria at birth. And this is something that still occurs today. The only thing is, is that we're better about preventing live births in moms who have active gonorrheal infections. Like we are better at screening moms earlier to treat them for the gonorrhea rather than letting their baby have the, letting their baby be born while there's like a gonorrheal infection. But still, if that were to happen, we could use silver nitrate. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I feel like it only happens in like um, unmonitored like pregnancies. Yeah, typically, yes. So this whole thing kind of just became a full-on public health battle of kind of recognizing gonorrhea as an issue that affected women. And this one lady, Dr. Christabel Pankhurst, was a huge player in this. She wrote a book called The Great Scourge and How to End It which was best known for basically inviting like suffragists or these are women who were trying to fight 
to get women the right to vote, um, mm. as we know. But she was this book kind of became this conduit for suffragists to start a quote unquote sex war. So the Great Scourge, as Christabel called it, um, was basically just venereal disease or STIs. And she actually talked a lot about um, syphilis and how male doctors spent a lot of time talking about syphilis because syphilis affected men so much more. And to her, she felt like they ignored gonorrhea as a serious STI that occurred in women. Mm. Mm -hmm. She also talked about the dangers of marriage, which I thought was funny. (laughs) Um, She, yeah, she was saying that in newly married couples, um, female gynecologists like herself basically colloquially um, call STIs honeymoon appendicitis. Uh, because women would go on their honeymoons, come back and have like salpingitis, which is inflammation of the fallopian tubes. Mm-hmm. And so even though a lot of doctors saw how STI was affecting women's fertility, there was no agreement on how to proceed regarding the infertility and how to treat it. Right. Yeah. And now We think that at that time, around one third of all infertility and sterility uh, was caused by gonorrhea in both men and women and how they like shared it among each other. Hmm. Yeah. And then I also just wanted to like acknowledge, I probably should have done this sooner, but um, there was really no like note or trace of non-binary and trans folks really included in any of these numbers. Mm -hmm. And that's just an unfortunate kind of consequence of history and knowing who is telling what histories and who is being left out. And I want to acknowledge that. Um, and I'm trying to be better about using more gender friendly, inclusive language. Um, but when I've I'm noticed this the, episode, I just, thank you. That's my little you. applause. <laughs> but in the history, because they're primarily using a gender binary, that's how I'm also telling the history. But, um, you know, with time, an antibiotic actually came out to treat gonorrhea. Um, They are called sulfonamides, which today are like Bactrim and other like sulfa-related drugs. And this kind of quelled the surge of STIs that was occurring. That was like all happening in the 1800s. Now, moving into the 1900s, enters chlamydia. And this is fun because Charlotte, the source of chlamydia and like where it kind of arose from is really not what you'd expect. So as a long shot, where do you think chlamydia came from? Like, what do you mean? Like where or like how? Like what reservoir? Yeah. Armadillos. No, good guess because that's pretty out there, but that's where leopards are leopards. Crap. Like super random. Mm. This is not a bad guess, actually. Is it in the seahorses? Okay, no, we're just getting very far from where it is. So it's actually from orangutans. (laughs) 
nothing like a seahorse. Nothing at yeah, all. Yeah, I was like, okay, let's just rein it in. <laughs> yeah. So there were these researchers who were looking into syphilis, actually, which also originated in orangutans. Oh. And they found bacteria, chlamydia trachomatis. Um, in their samples from orangutan urethras. What were they doing yeah. with orangutan urethras? They were studying syphilis. I feel bad for those orangutans and I'm Aww. hopeful. I don't know. I just, yeah, not a good time. But actually, a fun aside is the nickname for chlamydia. Clap. Yeah, the clap. <laughs> um, and there are some theories as to why it's called that. So. These are funny. So some say it's because the clap, because some say it's because of the clap or pain that patients would feel when urinating or also that soldiers and others um, would visit French brothels or clepiers um, Mm. and they would come back with gonorrhea. Another theory. Yeah. Yeah. Sick. Another theory is that the nickname came from this old medical technique where um, men would clap the penis on both sides of their oh. legs to remove discharge. Oh, no, that sounds <laughs> uncomfortable. I know. I was like, ouchie. Yeah, that's, um, that's a no for me. Yeah, but those, those are all theories men. why it's called the clap. I know I feel bad for them. Um, and in the, but basically like in the 1940s and 50s, when World War II was going on, even more people started looking into STIs and there were 14,975 cases of gonorrhea in men and 3,089 in women, which granted these numbers do not seem that big. And like the numbers for the women are very much skewed because the people getting tested were men. At mm-hmm. the time, but it just really shows the discrepancy and the disparity. And then also 14,000 people in like, a, you know, one sampled area is not actually that is kind of a lot. So, yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, 40s, 50s, I think something that I like really wanted to touch on in this episode is the ad campaigning to oh, really no. give you a good understanding of how STIs were viewed in this time. Um, and I would love like, and for the like graphics, I think like including some of these. Oh yeah. They'll be included. Really, really Don't fun. worry. But I will describe some of them here just so we can kind of, you know, get a little taste. So the first um, that I'm looking at is this woman. She is like, very beautiful. She is talking to two men and the ad says, all it says is booby trap, syphilis and gonorrhea. <laughs> booby taken very literally. <laughs> literally. The other one that I uh, particularly enjoy is uh, a, it's a poster of this woman. She's like really blown up on the, on the screen and it says she may look clean, but Pickups, good time girls, prostitutes, spread syphilis and gonorrhea. Oh, my God. And it says, you can't beat the axis if you get venereal disease, (laughs) which the axis, for people who don't know, is what the um, kind of like the enemy 
during World War II was called. It was like Russia and like other people. They were called the Axis and we were called the Allies. It was like us and Great Britain and France and all those people. So anyway, they were like, you can't, you can't do it if Axis. you have STIs. Yeah. Um, yeah. The other one that got me is um, it's a picture of a skull and this hat. There's like a women's hat on the skull and it says, hello, boyfriend coming my way. The easy girlfriend spreads syphilis and gonorrhea, which unless properly treated, may result in blindness, insanity, paralysis, premature death. Wow. Disease is disguised. Don't gamble with VD. And it's a picture of this woman in a mask. That's harsh. I know. know. So, yeah, there's there's several others. um, And you'll have to just take a look at them to really understand. But yeah, basically, like, sex was seen as this national security threat during world war ii um and that's kind of depicted through these ads but then also i have like a little story to share so in june of 1942 a woman named billy smith was arrested in her hotel room and charged with prostitution and violation of the state's immorality laws she pled guilty and paid the ten dollar fine which is like 150 dollars today But then she was turned over to the city's health examiner who ran tests on her for syphilis and gonorrhea. When they came back positive, the officer quarantined her because he argued that, quote, it affected the public health so intimately and so insidiously. And yeah, basically the issue the government had with STIs was not that women had them. Can you guess what the problem actually was, though? That didn't they, matter the women had them. That they were giving them to men. Yeah, specifically military men. Um, because military men were having sex with a lot of sex workers and other women who would basically come to the army base towns and army base camps. Mm-hmm. And STIs were seen to like spread in those towns. Damn. And the women who would like come to these towns that weren't considered like sex workers, they were just like women who would hang around the base camps and stuff they were called like khaki wackies or camp followers khaki wackies <laughs> this, is, this my... i'm so sorry <laughs> no listen to this one though this one's my favorite some of them were called good time charlottes what? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's like good- Charlotte the Harlot. Oh, no, it's not true. Take it back, Charlotte, yeah. not the Harlot. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Oh, my God. But yeah, I mean, so- I am a good time, but not like that. <laughs> but yeah, so that's, that's what these that's women good. were called. Isn't that funny? Wow. And yeah. then the federal government. A lot of people basically- named Charlotte back then, I guess. I, I guess they were. But the federal government would literally detain these women and then put them in quarantine centers around the country to, quote, protect the country's fighting men. And in 1941, actually, the May Act was passed, which made it a federal offense to solicit sex near near a military base. Wow. So health officials would focus on sex workers who 
had been kind of like either they would arrest them near military bases or factories. But then as the war progressed, these health officials basically moved on to like any woman who was somehow viewed or under suspicion as being a delinquent. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So if a woman like even looked suspicious, they would get taken in. And if they didn't agree to get tested, she would still be quarantined because it was thought that she had an STI and they just wouldn't release her. That's yeah. so sad. I know. And if they refused treatment, they could be kept quarantined indefinitely. Oh, my God. I know. I know. Oh. And then while they were there, they were kind of like counseled to, quote unquote, set them on the right path. Okay. <laughs> I know. And it's interesting because people have this idea, kind of like we were saying, that STIs were carried by women. And the women were passing STIs to these sad, innocent men. Yeah, like they had nothing little to do victims. with it. Right. And then when the Women's Army Corps, which was like the first branch of the military that was, you know, accepted women, it was like solely for women. When that came to when that came into existence, it actually required all the women to be abstinent. Whereas on male military bases, they always had condoms available. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. God. Yeah. And how many... Actually, never mind. I take it back. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. Yeah. So the 40s were an interesting time. Yeah. Look, fast forward. 1974, there's an article in Lancet, which is a very well-renowned medical journal. Yeah. Uh, and it came out titled The Chlamydia Genus is in Fashion Again. And it brought new evidence about the role of genital infections on pelvic inflammatory disease, calling to attention about how up to 45 of kind of these like non-specific genital infections were actually due to chlamydia. Hmm. New mm-hmm. tests were created and they were made available to the public. And this led to studies of women like attending STI clinics. And there was seen to be this correlation between STIs and promiscuity. Mm-hmm. I really love this narrative. Um, and in 1977, a study was published that in 26% of quote unquote promiscuous women who basically attended this like certain clinic that the sample was from 26% of promiscuous women had chlamydia and then 1% of non-promiscuous women also had chlamydia and so there was kind of this I know like they were basically trying to paint promiscuity this subjective measure as correlated to chlamydia and one thing that i did find interesting though is that in the sample the one percent that had chlamydia but was in the considered like non-promiscuous group were that one percent consisted of 200 female hospital staff (laughs) my god yeah so i don't know what was going on at that hospital but seems like it was a good time wow yeah just basically Grey's Anatomy uh, yeah that's what it seems like 
But the notable thing about this was that chlamydia was actually found to be in 20% of asymptomatic females, pointing to how chlamydia um, in women can go unnoticed, untreated over many years and over time. Right. Um, And so it was identified finally as like very dangerous to be untreated. Uh, But yeah, that's kind of like overall brief history, at least the juicier parts that I wanted to get to. Mm -hmm. Um, And I thought I'd kind of transition into just some information about screening guidelines for STIs now and give a little background about where things are at. So the screening guidelines from the CDC and the USPSTF or the United States Preventative Service Task Force state that all women under 35 and all men who have sex with men should start getting screened for gonorrhea and chlamydia annually once they start having sex. So let's break down kind of like the rationale there and like why this is the way it is. So the first kind of point is that female anatomy is different from male anatomy. And because of female anatomy, particularly how the urethra and vaginal introitus or entry point into the vagina are typically shorter than like the urethra in a male. And this makes women or people with uteruses more prone to UTIs and STIs. So that's kind of like the first pillar. Mm -hmm. The second reason is that gonorrhea and chlamydia can cause pelvic inflammatory disease or PID. And PID is what affects fertility in the long term. Whereas in men, the argument is that men can get um, epididymitis, which is like just another inflammatory condition in Mm -hmm. um, from gonorrhea and chlamydia. But this has been found to rarely, very rarely cause infertility. Right. And so that's like kind of the second reason is that like fertility becomes an issue. And then also women are less likely to have symptoms as we've talked about. And so that's why screening them is important. You know, kind of thinking about those things, I can very much understand why the guidelines are as they are. Yeah. Um, and the argument also is that there's insufficient data to really determine the effectiveness of screening heterosexual men who are at low risk of getting gonorrhea and chlamydia. Um, and it's kind of just been stated that like more research is needed, but the issue is that there's really no momentum to make that research happen. Like it would be very expensive and no one's really motivated to get the research done because it's not like STIs are not like COVID, you know, like it's not like a public health imminent necessity to kind of look into, Mm -hmm. but if it did become that, then more money would definitely get poured into it. Yeah. And so kind of before I conclude the session and just dive into more discussion points about all of this, I wanted to share a couple of quotes that I thought were interesting. So the quotes that I have are from two scholars who have kind of written about STIs and illness, the ways that we think about illness. And so the first quote is, a disease does not exist until we have agreed that it does by perceiving, naming, and responding to it. The second quote is, 
There are no illnesses or diseases in nature. Rather, illness and diseases are labels and actions that humans construct about the experiences, meanings, and implications of natural phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I thought they were very interesting quotes. I think there's just a lot to unpack here. And I think it's worth it to just kind of dive in. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's talk about sex, baby. Hey. Hello. We're back. Back, So, Shar, what are your thoughts? Period. (laughs) Question mark. (laughs) Just thoughts. What are they? Um, I guess that the history is kind of what I expected in a way that like a lot of it's like blaming women and a lot of it's focused on men because sometimes like S- like STIs do present worse in men and women don't notice. And that's why you can get pelvic inflammatory disease because like the STI can get so bad that it like moves so far up your reproductive tract and can causes like not great disease. I don't know. But I thought it was particularly hilarious that like the propaganda around STI testing around like the oh war. Oh my God. Like, the propaganda oh. is insane. It's so funny. Like it's, it's so literally funny. Like, women are giving you these diseases. Also interesting that it's like during like the war and like if keep women away from like the men <laughs> going to war. Yeah. Like uh, I don't know. I don't think an STI would stop you from going, being able to go to war, but no, but sex, be sex was literally a public health crisis at that time. So like, crazy. It was the enemy of the war, like the war effort. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's just like there's definitely a strong theme of like women are at fault for this. And like it's kind of like building the theme from the beginning that like STIs are stigmatized and like there's a yes. bad thing about them like from day one kind of situation. And it was like very much framed like specifically in women in history. And I don't know if it's the same today so heavily, but definitely in the past when they didn't know what was going on or like couldn't really understand what was happening, like just blaming, just so much blame on women and stigma, stigmatizing it. Yeah, no, STIs, I think are one of the most stigmatized conditions in like medical literature and Mm -hmm. health systems. Um, which we know, obviously that's like me stating the obvious, but it's, I think stigmatized conditions tend to really blur the line between like social and medical, Mm -hmm. like kind of sequelae or like how they manifest. And there's like way more to talk about there than just the medical outcomes um, because of the stigma. So Kind of in that same vein, what are your thoughts on disease as a social phenomenon? And how does that impact the way STIs have been stigmatized over time? Yeah. So this this is funny because I have to like do all these module things for school right now. And one was on like, what's the difference between disease and illness? And it was talking about like diseases, the like actual physical um, like problem in your body. And an illness is how like you interpret that disease and like interact with like yourself in the world now that you have that disease and that it's like presenting in you, which I thought was kind of interesting. So like you could, you know, 
have an STI and like the illness part is like people stigmatizing it. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's very much a social phenomenon. Cause like you can have cold sores, like cultures are super, super common. Like you mentioned, like I know tons of people who have cold sores, but if like they come out and say like them saying like I have cold sores versus them saying like I have herpes are two super different statements to say like socially. Yeah. Even though they mean the exact same thing. They were literally the exact same thing. Like, and it's interesting that some people don't even know that they're the same thing because there's such a stigma against herpes specifically that yeah, you can't even say that your cold sores are herpes because people just instantly like it's a different thought process in their mind, like a different view of that illness. And then that also can cause problems because like you said, it can be transmitted in multiple different ways, different parts of the body. And if you don't realize that your cold sore is like transmissible to other people, then you could get someone else to have it. All this misinformation and like lack of knowledge is because of the social phenomenon of how STS are so stigmatized. Just sex is very stigmatized in general. Just like, yeah, that's kind of interesting because like, why is it stigmatized? Like it's just a part of human life. And unfortunately, sore STI, so is any illness. Just because you get it through relations with another person doesn't mean it makes your illness any less dignified. Yeah, I agree. I think all of this is just rooted in the fact that sex is super stigmatized in our society. And I think depending on where you're from, your background, like what circles you run in, it's more or less Mm -hmm. of an okay thing to talk about. Um, but even in like a medical context, it's like awkward. People don't want to talk about STIs to their doctors. Uh, it's very embarrassing, especially when it comes to like younger providers talking to older patients, it's, you know, super stigmatized, um, and just like an embarrassing thing, um, to talk about and it doesn't need to be, but normalizing it is hard. And I think it's, I, feel like it's gotten better with time, Mm. but I can completely recognize my own biases, where I come from, my background, and how I feel very liberal Mm -hmm. when I talk about these topics, but that is absolutely not the case for many people. So I think just continuing to like destigmatize and doing so in ways that help like normalize STIs is really beneficial, but it's easy to say and difficult to do. Mark's question that I have, which is, should we widen our STI screening guidelines to include men? Mm-hmm. And how do the current guidelines contribute to historically negative connotations of STIs? This yeah. is a loaded question. I think this question really gets at a lot of like what I've been seeing, experiencing on my family medicine rotation right now. I mean, everything is about prevention and screening. And mm-hmm. I think this one kind of stirred a lot of discussion yeah. in the circles that I run in. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm going to start with the last part of the question of like, how do the guidelines maybe contribute to historical negative things and like because we we're just talking about how historically like women were blamed for it for stis because that's just like what made the most logical sense at the time it, it kind of sounds like um and today like as you mentioned mostly women are screened for stis which if you're not like looking at the background because I, I agree it makes sense after you have explained it why women are screened more than men um but that doesn't like it doesn't mean women are more prone to disease or like mm-hmm. they don't have safe sex, like things like that. Like 
but I can see how guidelines can influence those thoughts. If you don't understand totally. the background of the guidelines. So just kind mm-hmm. of like carrying that over from the past of people thinking it's based in women. And then now being like, oh, women get screened every year for STS until they're 25. Oh, or like, is that assuming women are dirty or women like are more prone women are mm-hmm. this or that. And that's not true at all. And I think it also is, it affects men negatively too, because it's saying like men are less, like it makes people feel like men are less prone to STIs, which isn't true. There are things that make them less prone. Like their urethra isn't super tiny, but like you mentioned earlier, how that can be a risk factor for things, but mm-hmm. it, they can still get STIs. So I do think Absolutely. guidelines should be widened. I don't know if they should be the exact same as women's guidelines. I'm not a researcher in the area, but I think it needs to be talked about with men, like in their you know wellness check encounters where a woman would be tested, like where her doctor would be like, you should get tested this year. Be the same conversation for a man, because why not? It's preventative care. It's something that can help them in the long run. You never know, like you should get tested for HIV at least once in your lifetime. And if an yeah. STI conversation doesn't come up, in a conversation with a physician, that that guideline alone might not come up. Just things yeah. like that. Like you could do so much preventative care for men by like increasing the guidelines. And also it could take away from the negative connotations of women. It would just like help everyone. It would help all genders all around, you know, like not just men and women, just everyone <laughs> would be helped yeah. by guidelines being more inclusive of things. I agree. And I think that there's just trouble with like what would be nice versus like what is reasonable in reality, what will actually happen. Um, and I have some things that I was also just like kind of thinking about in terms of these guidelines. Yeah. But um, the first thing I kind of, the first thing I found interesting that I wanted to highlight is um, kind of the reason why we choose to uh, like the reason why it's, we feel that it's important for women to get screened mm-hmm. is because Chlamydia and gonorrhea can cause PID, which can affect fertility. Mm -hmm. And I think that ties back to our age old discussion of are women boiled down to their ability to have children? Yeah, that's a really good point. So that's like the first thought that I had, which, of course, like if I was a woman who like wanted to have a child and then I went to the doctor and I was having trouble conceiving and I found out that it was because I had chlamydia for a really long time and therefore I was infertile, I would be devastated. And so I'm not at all trying to undermine that feeling, but I think it's important to, to kind of recognize like women are more than just fertility and incubators. If men were tested and they could one, you know, stop men from getting STIs because we don't want them to have it either. Like we don't want anyone to have any illness or disease. Um, two, we could stop them from giving other people the STI like they could give other women, other men, whoever the STI too. Like there's lots of like benefits to men being tested as well. So I completely agree that I think it should be part of conversations with younger male folks of like importance of getting screened, even though it's not technically a guideline. Mm-hmm. Um, but the issue that I was like reflecting on is not all young people, especially, but then particularly like men don't have 
PCPs or doctors because there's really no reason for them to, which I kind of understand they're young, they're healthy. There's no like known, you know, or like kind of set screening that needs to happen. Whereas in women, people with uteruses, we get pap smears. Yeah. So um, you're like starting at age 21 at some point. Yeah. Or just like a family doctor or PCP, like literally anyone who does pap smears. Um, and usually while you're getting your pap smear, they'll offer STI screening and it's just, just you know, while they're already there, they're (laughs) just doing it. And so that's another thing is like an access issue. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the other, other thing that I think is really, really important to mention is the racial and socioeconomic disparities, because Mm -hmm. it's really easy to sit here on a pedestal and look around and say, oh, you know, I know men who do have PCPs and do get tested for STIs. And I think that this issue like is, you know, not a public health concern at this moment. And therefore it's not that important. It's not that important to you here in this Mm -hmm. space, but, um, STIs are known to be more prevalent in um, more rural communities, more urban communities Mm -hmm. with like a lot of people who are having unprotected sex where education and health literacy um, tend to be a little less accessible, not to anyone's fault, but the system. And so like that is something very important to consider when we're talking about like guidelines and importance of screening. Um, And so I don't think that the solution is necessarily to just blanket, like widen all the guidelines. I think that's not economically feasible. That doesn't Mm -hmm. seem like evidence-based and reasonable in that way. But um, there were some, you know, like I was reading into things and like looking and trying to figure out if anyone asked like, what if people suggested? Yeah. And like even where men can get STI testing, if you don't have PCP, because well, yeah. one, if you're in college and you have that privilege and you are able to go to like the college center, like health center, and they usually have free yeah. STI um, testing there. But if you're not in college, then like where do you get it? And like a lot of women can go to Planned Parenthood and like women's health centers, which are way more. As popular. a man, you can go which to Planned Parenthood, but that? people you can, but mm-hmm. people yeah, don't that. think to because yeah. of the way that Planned Parenthood is like perceived mm-hmm. in society. And that also would mean that you have to have a Planned Parenthood accessible to you. Yeah, yeah. um, That is well-funded and, like, still running in your area. So there's just, like, a lot of issues there. And this is also just not what's on the forefront of people's minds, or at least least young men. Um, But I did read, like, a couple of interesting kind of options that would help mitigate some of these issues. So the first is just having like STI express clinics Mm -hmm. where people could walk in, get testing and treatment without having to go through like the full clinical exam. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Or like a self swab at home. That would be amazing. Kind of like a COVID swab, but that's mm -hmm. like too expensive and no one's going to pour money into that. Um, I just remembered this, that when I worked in like public schools in Detroit, there were STI like testing that would come to the high schools. I remember. So they would like come yeah. to the high schools and like do testing on students for free. And people would be like, I remember hearing stories from coworkers being like, the students would be like so excited about it. They'd be like, Oh my God, like I'm negative. Like just like really excited to like go and get their STI testing and like see the results. Um, so I don't know. I thought that was kind of cool. Like health outreach. 
Yeah, I love that. I mean, going to places that everyone goes. So like, for example, partnerships with like pharmacies and um, other health clinics, urgent cares where people can go to get like STI services, Mm -hmm. schools, those kind of things. I think that's great. And then the other thing that has just blown up obviously recently is like telehealth and telemedicine Mm -hmm. and closing gaps in testing and treatment and just like helping with the gap of access, like access gaps yeah, um, in like rural communities and stuff. So those are like a few things that I found in my reading, but I think there's just a lot of barriers to getting to that point. And the main issues that people don't really see STIs as this major public health concern. I mean, it's hard to talk about and important to like just like be educated about which is hard because even if you like grew up in an area where maybe you had more access to health education your health education comes from like sex ed in school which is like not really great in a lot of school systems that's Mm -hmm. a lot of your education on like stis you could also get it from your like pediatrician but there's like a point where you like would have to open up to your doctor about being sexually active for them to like start the conversation with you as a pediatrician if you went yeah. to pediatrician growing up and then you'd have to go to a doctor after that to continue getting education. So like, you know, it's just hard to get the education. Like you said, unless you're like looking for it because there's not like a good yeah. baseline, like public system. We could go on for yeah. days talking about this, but a lack of education yeah, but- is really the problem for a lot of it. Lack of yeah. Education and access. yeah. And understanding the historical context in which we have kind of reach the point that we are at is the bare minimum that we can do. And hopefully it was informative for you and not you, but like the, the listener. It was informative for me too. Okay, good. good. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, I love talking about STIs, love talking about, I love talking about STIs, obviously. Yeah. So so if you like to talk about STIs or you like to hear more, you, sh- you should subscribe to our podcast. You can subscribe on any podcasting app you like to listen to. And if you have time, leave a rating and review. And Apple Podcasts is the best place to leave a review, but you can also leave ratings on Spotify as well. And then you can also follow us on social media. We have an Instagram and a Facebook, which are at from Scrubs to Scrubs, and a Twitter, which is at FSTS underscore podcast. And then you can also check out our website, from scrubs.com for more information, show notes, sources, and merch. And lastly, here is to the women who have fought for us to be where we are today. And may we do the same the, for those. The Charlottes, the good time Charlottes. <laughs> the good time Charlottes. And may we do the same for those who come after us. Yay. See you okay. next time. Bye, everyone. Bye.